Hello and welcome to episode number 328 of the Armin Show podcast, where we have been rolling. We have momentum and we are learning more about people, behavior, science, economics, law, a variety of topics, which is good when you combine them. That's interesting to me. It's like the complex systems that they study at Santa Fe Institute or wherever it is. On this episode, we have the author of a book combining law and human behavior. Interesting concept right here. The book is called The Behavioral Code. The Hidden Ways the Law Makes Us Better or Worse. Two authors. One we have here, Benjamin Van Ruij and Adam Fine. Benjamin joins us on this episode. Benjamin, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me on. I'm glad to have you on. Now, before we get, there's quite a few things I like. Automatically, when I saw the book at the beginning, by the way, Robert Sapolsky right there. I've interviewed him before and he is wonderful. And I never see him on books. So that was nice. I was like, he's back in business. That's cool. <laughs> he is super duper. And behave makes sense. Behave, behavioral code. There's a linkage there. Uh, one of my favorite books, actually. I did a lot of episodes just breaking down the chapters of that book. It's wonderful. It's a wonderful book. <laughs> and I love the chapter that he has on free will and the law. It's a great chapter that we use in teaching, actually. Oh, that makes sense. Right. That would apply. That's a good one. I like linkages like that. Now... Before we get into the content of the book, first I would want to check um, your co-author and then your background. So your co-author, how did you end up working with Adam Fine in the first place? How have you known of each other and why team up on this book? Great, so Adam was a graduate student doing a PhD in psychology uh, at Uni University of California, Irvine, where I was teaching at the time at the law school. And uh, we started to collaborate on projects where we were studying how people's so-called, what we call rule orientation, whether their personality is more oriented towards rules, whether it affects their own compliance with rules. So that's how we started. I had already the idea of, of developing this book from my own background, I can say more about that. And for Adam coming into this, he's a developmental psychologist who studies ju a juvenile crime. And his experiences has been that um, that there's so much empirical knowledge about why juveniles and young adults commit crime that don't really translate into the law and that all of this knowledge gets lost. And he'd also seen that uh, working uh, in practice, also, uh, also teaching in schools. He'd seen again and again that sort of the scientific knowledge is not used in practice. So we combine our both, both of our backgrounds into what became this book. That's cool. I do like the application of and presentation of science in the book, which shows up a lot. It's not just uh, legally based. And that's a nice feature because I like a lot of science and logical background between uh, people and behavior. Now, as far as your background, you are at Amsterdam. You are professor of law and society at the University of Amsterdam in the School of Law. And you used to be at the University of California, Irvine. Take me through your path. Uh, yes. from the start to there and today. So, so for me, this book started a long time ago in 2000. My background, I was trained in a bachelor and master's of both of law as well as of Chinese language and cultures. And I went to China in 2000 to study uh, environmental law. And I wanted to understand how these rules made in Beijing worked out at the local level. So there I was, I understood Chinese, I understood law, but I didn't understand behavior. And the more I looked at what was happening, the more I saw that everything I'd learned in law school didn't play out the way I thought. So that led me on this long journey of first studying these issues in China and then increasingly elsewhere to really seeing, look, the way we lawyers uh, who make up the rules that guide behavior, we, we control the biggest behavioral systems, I mean, that we have, we lack the sort of training and understanding of human conduct and organizational conduct needed to make these systems work well. So I started to go deeper and deeper into the empirics of this, also started to study, to do my own, own, own uh, empirical analysis, got trained in anthropology, public administration, criminology, and psychology. And that ended up, I mean, sort of seeing, look, I need to tell this story, first of all, to my colleagues in law, but more important to a broader audience, because in the end, law is not made in a vacuum. It's made based on, on everybody's, um, everybody's political preferences. And I saw also interacting with a lot of different people in the US, in Europe, in China, 
that most people have sort of assumptions about how law gets to shape behavior that are not in line with what we know scientifically. And that ended up becoming this popular science book that Adam and I did. Right. That's nice. I like popular science. It will travel to many people, many more than maybe the basic underpinnings behind it would get to. Because yeah. people don't go to those things unless there's a bit more uh, pep, we might say. Exactly. Cool. Now, the behavioral code, the hidden ways the law makes us better. It's mentioning the hidden ways, which means uh, items that are not explicitly laid out. What is the law missing at its base level that um, underneath it is being is impacting yeah. people? So let me first say what we do see. So if we compare it, I mean, as a cliche with an iceberg, I mean, I mean, the top we see is sort of the visible part, which is punishment and sort of the, the clear incentives of the law. So the book has two chapters on that. And it shows that punishment as well as tort and rewards, they don't really work as we expect them. Uh, the evidence that, 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 that punishment actually reduces bad conduct is very thin. And for many instances, there is no evidence. And sometimes it makes behavior worse. And the same applies to tort liability, where we have no evidence that it actually reduces risk in many areas, such as medical malpractice or, uh, for, instance, um, uh, for instance, traffic accidents. So that's the visible part. The invisible part, um, to get there, you have to understand sort of what, what these visible parts are like. They're very much focused on three things. One is they assume people make a rational choice that is individual um, and that they have the ability to make that choice. So these three things we question in the book. First of all, a lot of our behavior, and many books have shown that, that's not new in our book, is not conscious, I mean, deliberative. So there's a lot of unconscious things happening that are automated. Second, a lot of behavior is social. We respond to others. We don't just do that individually. And third, and this is maybe the most surprising thing in the book, is we don't often have the capacity either to engage in good behavior or the opportunity to engage in bad behavior. So once you, you, you take those three lessons into account, you get other mechanisms. First of all, a lot of our behavior is shaped by, um, by, by, by non-amoral issues. So moral, morality matters. So we show the ways in which we develop morals, the way to become aligned with rules or not, and the way that then shapes behavior. Second, social norms, the behavior of others shapes how we act. Third, whether we think the system is legitimate matters. So our sort of belief in the system, which has a lot to do, for instance, how the system treats us. So, so police misconduct breeds more crime. That's one of the things that science has shown again and again. Um, fourth, um, our ability to follow rules. Most people don't know most rules. You'd be surprised the amount of law people don't know, even if there's very basic rights, rights of, that people have at the workplace. They don't know their rights, they underestimate them. Basic criminal law uh, rules. And even experts don't know the law. So doctors don't know the intricate rules of doctor-patient privilege very well. Um, and we see that school principals don't know education rules very well. And also people are not always able to do what the law asks. And finally, um, and this is the strongest part I think in the book, is there's many instances where we're unable to do bad things and break the law. And we can actually have interventions there. So a very good, a very simple example is, um, there is very cheap technology that would disable your iPhone or your other phone, a Samsung phone or whatever you have, your Android phone, from being operated from the driver's seat. So we could just mandate that, soft, that, that, that sort of technology to be in every car. That would mean that you can't operate the phone in a, in a, in a, very, in a very risky manner. It also would mean that you don't need law enforcement, you don't need surveillance, you don't need all these other, I mean, visible things that have not been working very well to prevent accidents. So we show these different mechanisms, both the visible ones and the invisible ones, and we look at both what we know, what we don't know, and also how we can use it, and also what the limits are. We don't believe in a quick fix. We don't believe there's any simple way to make everybody behave better and comply better. If that were the case, we would have, have probably written the new Bible, which we didn't. True. I like the when you were describing punishment in the punishment chapter, 
how you describe um, it's not completely understood the effects until you look at okay after effects are people uh, committing the crime again um, what is causing them to be deterred and then specific versus uh, general deterrence different methods of keeping them from committing some sort of crime I also like the tipping levels where at a certain point people just don't commit crimes because they know the punishment will impact them but below that level they think it's not going to relate to me how can the law better relate uh, punishment to people's behavior or is punishment the wrong category for this or a necessary element no i think it's a necessary element so if there's no punishment you have you have Im, Im, impunity so anybody who's seen the walking dead or any show i mean set in the in in, in the um in frontier areas in the mid 19th century in the us can see what a system looks like if you don't have uh, any sort of rules that are not backed up by state sanctions at some point that leads to a different type of chaos so i, so I do think punishment is a necessary element as Beccaria, who we discussed in the book, it's a necessary evil. So that's also how you have to treat it. So you have to treat punishment as something you only want to do if it's really necessary, if, if it can help to prevent bad behavior. And then you have to ask the question, how does punishment actually get to impact behavior? And what the book shows once, you've, once you read the whole book is actually, because we get back to punishment in nearly every chapter, um, is that punishment has many different effects on behavior. If, if you count all of them, there's 18 discussed in the book. And of these 10 are positive, meaning that if you punish, you get better behavior. And um, um, sorry, eight are positive, 10 are negative. So on the positive side, one is it ends impunity. I said that already. I'll also discussed in the book, there's deterrence. So punishment can deter in two ways. One is it can make people who break the law not reoffend again because they didn't like being punished. So the experience of being punished makes you not want to reoffend. So that's specific deterrence. You can also uh, scare other people off who might want to break the law. That's general deterrence. And the book shows, as you just discussed, that uh, there's limited evidence of this and that the most important thing is the certainty of the punishment. And if it's not certain enough, then it won't have an effect. But once you look at the whole scale of things, you see that there is also negative elements. For instance, um, if you punish more, you may create so-called criminogenic effects. If you lock people up in jail, they might learn more crime from other people in jail. It may also have exclusionary effects. Uh, Ex-offenders, when they get back into society, in the US, for instance, they can be legally discriminated when looking for jobs, when looking for housing, and when they're trying to get access to education. And we know from research, when you have less access to education, for instance, you're more likely to reoffend. So it's these things. So it's once you're thinking about punishment from a behavioral point of view, you have to ask, what does it do? And how can we make the positive effects stronger while preventing its negative effects? And the problem now in punishment is we sort of discuss this, A, only in very simplistic terms, only about deterrence and maybe locking people away so that they don't reoffend. And we don't understand the full influences. B, a lot of our discussion about punishment isn't about prevention. It's sort of about a retribution. And I'm not against retribution. It's just that I prefer, if I have to choose, to prevent new victims from having to, to have retribution for victims that already exist. So I think the more important question is how can we prevent crime rather than uh, have revenge against existing crime? I think that's the political discussion we should be having, which Adam and I have been trying to have in op-ed pages. We did a piece on preventative justice, which is really about, look, nobody likes bad behavior. Nobody likes crime. I think everybody agrees on that. Maybe we don't agree what is crime, but I think the core thing is we want to prevent it. And if we want to prevent it, if we're serious about it, then we have to look at the science. And the science, unfortunately, shows that what we, what we need to prevent crime is not the same as what we in intuitively feel that we should be doing against um, in order to take revenge against crime of the past. And that's, that's one of the problems that we discuss in the book. Wonderful. Yes, prevention before something that's almost like a dentist. Prevention before you have some huge tooth issue, and then you need to handle that. 100%. And that's also where we draw a comparison with medicine. So in medicine, we see there's preventative medicine now. And there's evidence-based practice. So in, in the conclusion of the book, 
we really think that law and justice and talking about justice should be much more about a prevention b about evidence-based that's true now one thing that came to mind is would you say that the law is a little bit more heavily focused on those uh let's say smaller minority who commit crime than the general public is there a possible focus they could be putting uh on more people than those who commit crime regularly and become very focused on like uh, the hammer and nail kind of concept yeah so so that's a difficult question there's so much law so i mean the the, the most visible law that an average person sees of course is criminal law which is focused on certain certain types of crime. But I mean, I mean, uh, in the introduction, we kind of show if you just drive around in your car, and if you would see all the rules that apply to your car, yeah. how many how many thousands of rules you would be seeing? And those were just the ones that we took from the California Vehicle Code that you may appreciate because you live in LA yeah. and you probably drive a car because you live in LA. Yeah. Just the amount of law that applies to just your car and you driving it. So a lot of the law actually is all around you all the time. And the interesting thing is most of that law, it doesn't even come to, to actually shape behavior or come alive because nobody knows it. I mean, nobody deals with it. So there's only a small set of law that actually comes to the surface. And of that, most of that comes to the surface when there's a dispute. And then we go to court or there's law enforcement and that part of the law is what we're all talking about. And what our book is about is about all kinds of ways in which law, as we have it, is shaping our behavior in everyday situations. And we want that law, and, and a lot of that works quite well, I think, for cars. Your car starts every morning, and so far it hasn't killed you yet. So probably law is doing okay there, right? right? But we want the law to do better there. And for that, I don't think it's easy to say, oh, it should only focus on these folks and not on these folks. I think that's, that's a question that's impossible to answer. Rather, I would say, let's say, which types of, I, I would turn it around and say, which types of behavior do we think is highest risk with the highest impact for which law might make a difference and for which it hasn't? For those types of law, I would say, let's make a behavioral analysis like we argue in the book. Let's find out, A, what are the rules? B what are the implementing mechanisms of the rules and do they actually make sense and can we improve them? So we can do that for crime and violent crime, but we can also do that, let's say, for jaywalking, if that's something we care about, or for Me Too cases, or for doping in sports. And those are indeed political questions because they're questions about what do we think is bad and what do we think needs to be addressed. And that's not something we answer in the book. We leave that to others. I like the data analysis comes into play a variety now because we have so much wonderful uh, recording of everything that we can see okay what's the impact of this a month later a year later five years later it's kind of like uh sapolsky would say with like a decision one minute yep um, from now an hour from now and so on now if we have that kind of material and we've applied it to punishment what are a few examples where punishment didn't work out well that got yeah. in your decision so so so, so the most interesting cases that are discussed in the book and that we have good data on are a capital punishment and the three strikes route sentence enhancement. So let's start with capital punishment. So obviously with any of these things, you have two, you have, you have on the one hand, the, the, the uh, influence variable, which would be capital punishment. And the other, other hand, you have the outcome, which would be crime. The hard thing is crime has many causes. So there's many, many, many different causes to crime. There can be really, really, really uh, I mean, I mean, the, the demographics, how many youth you have, the more you, the more people you have between the age of 16 and 23, the more crime and the more violent crime you're going to have, period. That's something we know very well. Uh, socioeconomic conditions. Uh, if there's more, more poverty, you're going to have more crime, etc. So you sort of have to filter out those things. So simply having a comparison, let's say you have two states, one state, um, has abolished capital punishment, the other hasn't. And then comparing the effects of the amount of crime in the state that abolished compared with the other state is not gonna get you there. So we see that in the earlier studies of capital punishment, um, the quality of the analysis wasn't very good at filtering out those effects. 
Um, we've, becoming, we've become better and better at that. But if I look at the latest report from the National Research Council that sort of overlooks all the research we have and gives advice to government about it, they say that still, given the complexity of the causality here, we cannot come to a certain conclusion that capital punishment deters or not. So it's very frustrating. The frustrating thing is the state of science is that we have no evidence that capital punishment deters. And then we come in with our voice, we say, okay, what does that mean? So the National Research Council just leaves it at that. We say, well, it is quite something to find that there's no evidence. It does have a meaning. It means that you cannot make an argument that it does deter. Neither can you make an argument that it doesn't. But of course, capital punishment comes with tremendous costs. And those costs are justified by the fact that it would deter. That's also legally under the Eighth Amendment in the US. Um, under, under one of the tests you have to do, you have to show that it has a, that it serves a valid penological goal. And one of those goals is deterrence. And the court in the 1970s has actually um, sort of made the argument when it reinstated capital punishment after it sort of, uh, sort of put it on a moratorium in the early 70s, that it does deter. And uh, it then cherry picked through the evidence. I mean, I mean, focusing on one of the, the, the empirical studies and not on all. So sort of what we learned from that is A, uh, for capital punishment, anybody who says that it deters is not backed up by evidence. So if the argument to do capital punishment is deterrence, that argument just doesn't have the evidence. So I think that's an important thing in any debates about this. Second is we need to, and this is a really important part that's not in the book uh, uh, as much as, as something that I'm developing now with my research team in Amsterdam is we really argue that judges for questions about human behavior, such as the Supreme Court dealing with uh, questions of capital punishment under the Eighth Amendment need a proper process in how to deal with empirical evidence. They can't cherry pick. And we draw on, 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 on systematic review procedures that exist in academia. Then we argue that these procedures should be applied to also in court. So if you have a question that's empirical about behavior, you need to follow a procedure where you, uh, A, collect all the evidence, so if you look at systematic review, you need to follow a procedure where you collect, you search engines of academic databases where you get everything under research. And then you have a procedure where you code it for relevance and you include everything in, your, in what you review. B, that you review your coding protocols are sound. And then you can sort of come to a conclusion. So that's a very strong thing. For three strikes, you're out, similar story. Um, of all the studies we've reviewed, we found uh, all of them but two concluded that capital punishment, sorry, that three strikes were out, did not deter. Several found that it actually created more crime. Only two studies that we reviewed uh, found um, that it did deter. One of these studies found it only deterred uh, for nonviolent crimes. Well, that's not why we have three strikes were out. And the other found that it wasn't cost effective compared to more policing. Um, so that's sort of the story there. Again, we see, if you look at what the Supreme Court did, they cherry picked in the Ewing case, they cherry picked through the evidence. So they, they did cite a report by the Attorney General of California showing that it did deter, and they didn't, for instance, look at all the work that Frank Zimmering from Berkeley did, showing that that report from the Attorney General didn't look at the right time frame. So if you look at three strikes route and you look immediately after the three strikes route, you see that crime goes down. If you look at the longer time frame before, you see that crime was already on the decline earlier. So it's those types of details. If you don't go into those, and what we try to do in the book is to try to give a balanced view. We do show what are arguments against what we show. So some popular science books are really fun to read and easy. Ours is fun to read, but we do portray the science. We do really want to show if there's a different scientific fact out there, a different scientific opinion, we want to show it. If there's doubt in the science, we show it, even if it's uncomfortable. That's one thing that actually pulls me toward content, which makes me, I think, in a minority, because when there is more of that, I am more pulled into the book, whereas when it's more of what the um, more common book is, I can't really get into it too much because it's a bit too much of uh, like names and places and not enough 
of the the concepts behind it. Now, one thing that comes to mind is you were just describing this. If a lot of uh, laws from, let's say, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years ago didn't include as much data analysis or empirical studies, and then they use that law, it's pinned down and coded, and then later on it's used as precedent for some new item repeatedly and repeatedly, how does one, now that we have better data and we're looking at longer periods of time, how do you adjust what is now like hard-coded into the law? Yeah, and this is a core question. And this is what we, in the end of the book, talk about, about behavioral jurisprudence. And this is a, a sort of, um, I mean, just as, as behavioral economics um, came to question core tenets in economic thinking, uh, what we're arguing, and this is not only our own work, but we see we're kind of drawing upon uh, decades of work of others. Based on that work, we're arguing that the law needs a behavioral correction. It, it, it direly needs one so, maybe even more than economics. And the behavioral correction here is broader than the, econo- than the behavioral correction economics. So behavioral correction economics is about sort of the basic tenets of individual rational choice thinking. The correction here is much broader because law in of itself has just not bothered itself too much with thinking about human conduct and about behavior and about influence and behavior, even though the law itself serves as a very important behavioral mechanism. But law is very much something that comes out of tradition where we build upon tradition, more tradition. So this is exactly as you say, it is uh, codifying existing norms and then it builds new norms based on precedent and, and furthers them. Of course, there's other kinds of law where we, we regulate and we try and change behavior uh, outside of precedent. So in order to change that, you need several things. One is you need to train legal uh, future lawyers in a different way. And even though there is more and more economists, sociologists, psychologists in law schools, we don't yet see sufficiently that they're training lawyers to think about changing behavior in the future. A lot of the knowledge is applied to uh, A, uh, making decisions on what the right rules should be, sort of normative decisions, or B, sort of understanding how conflicts and conflict resolution works better, which is sort of, I mean, it's responding to behavior in the past rather than changing behavior in the future. So we argue for a different curricula. And for instance, in Amsterdam, I'm, I'm teaching a compulsory first year law course to 800 students on law and human behavior. And that's revolutionary. It's, we're the only curriculum that made that, that compulsory, which they did even before I came back to Amsterdam. So I, have, I, I, I mean, it's my colleagues who developed that, it's not me. Um, second, in legal practice, you need to make behavioral arguments more central. And there's, there is, um, I think, good grounds for that. So if we see, for instance, uh, in our study of the Eighth Amendment, we see that lawyers uh, on defense side could make arguments if they were better trained in the uh, behavioral science, they could kind of show that the other side's empirics is cherry-picked. They could show that it doesn't really reflect the state of knowledge. They could also appeal decisions from judges on that basis. I'm not saying that's easy, also because a lot of justices are not trained in this. And we've seen that Roberts, uh, I mean, Chief Chief Justice Roberts, in an unrelated case on redistricting, where also complex data was introduced, called it sociological gooblygook. and I think googly goog means the sounds of hoofs that a donkey makes, but I would, I would have to look that up. Yeah. Um, um, so, so there's a longer period to go. Third, there is a large practice called compliance and ethics management in corporate practice, where there's a lot of money to be made. And I see increasingly this practice has moved out of sort of making sort of checking the boxes systems that we also discuss in the book to real behavioral change. And I see a lot of these high-end corporate lawyers and this is in the end what law schools are catering to. It's in the end also people who go into clerkships want to go into corporate practice. So that's where the, it, it's pulling a lot of other practitioners there. And in that practice, that's where we see the biggest growth in jobs. And I'm working with a lot of different uh, international corporations with the behavioral units they now have. And there's lawyers there and social science. So there's a big incentive. There's money to be made. So I think all of this can come together to change. Speaking of that, in the coming years, let's say this uh, decade up, up until 2030, 
would you see it as a light refining of laws that we've already had to adjust them a little bit or a huge adjustment based on um, what we are able to now understand so like a huge change like a divergence or like a convergence of slight adjustment yeah. over time so of course the biggest type of legal change comes through legislation and for instance in the us we know how hard it is to make any legislation nowadays so based on that i would say it's not going to be a huge adjustment adjustment i think it will grow gradually i think the biggest insight probably to start with from the book is just simply starting with do people know the law so for instance we now have uh, well over 300,000 rules that are criminal backed by criminal sanctions that apply to corporations in the US. Just imagine. Only 300,000. 300,000. So imagine you're a CEO in a company and you have 30 lawyers. Then each of these lawyers has to memorize and understand 10,000 rules. And they have to be able to communicate them with you and your team to be able to be ensured that everybody in your, in your organization, and maybe it's a big organization, 10,000 people, understands them and complies with them. So that we all know is impossible. So a first start would be to kind of say, which rules do we really need and which ones don't we need? Which ones should we focus on? So I think that's a start. And it's an interesting thing. I'm, I mean, I'm an admitted pro progressive and progressives always like, I mean, often like more rules and more government. But I've come to see that, well, maybe there is something here on the conservative side. Maybe we do need to, in earnest, think about okay, which rules actually make sense and which don't. So I think that may be something politically where we can have a discussion together. We might not agree, but we may agree on the amount of rules, that it doesn't make sense to have all these uh, inactive debt rules that are under the water and never coming to the surface. That immediately made me think of like a closet where you have way more clothes than you remember going all the way to the back. And then <laughs> if they haven't been organized in many years, you don't remember what you have, what you don't have, what you'd like to get rid of, what you'd want to wear. And then uh, the clutter actually cuts away at your ability to really pick and choose what's most valuable for you at this time. Clutter is really- That's a nice metaphor. I, just, I, mean, I mean, the funny thing about law is because we have this sort of ex post understanding. So think about the same company again, I, I just said. If they break a single rule, even if they're not aware of that rule, once they've broken the rule and somehow they get found out and somehow a prosecutor takes them to court, then we get all these lawyers involved. They find the right rule. They find all the court, the case law. And exposed, it's not a problem that we don't know the law. It's only ex ante. Once we want to shape future conduct, it's a problem. And that's sort of the problem we have in all of this. Most of us, and especially people in law, think too much exposed, think too much in terms of, okay, once we have a certain conduct, then we can find the applicable rules. But once we think about, we wanna, we wanna prevent bad behavior, then that rule has to be there actively, or at least operationalized in a process that shapes behavior uh, on an everyday basis. Mm -hmm. One thing that just came to my mind is in this category, what is one challenge you have had in uh, recent time or currently in behavior with law? And then what's one thing that has been working well currently or in recent time that uh, you will be continuing? Yeah, so, so, so one of the core challenges my research now focuses on is organizational culture. So if you think of some of the biggest scandals of the last year or two years, whether it's police misconduct, it doesn't, it is not just the individual police officer. It's very often the culture in the department or broader in the police force. If you think of Me Too cases, it's not always the predatory individual. It's often the enabling environment that's enabling it. If you look at the Weinstein case, you do see that a much broader environment in Hollywood uh, was actually supporting that. Um, if you think of uh, Volkswagen and, and Dieselgate, if you think about Wells Fargo and what happened there, all cases of organizational culture. So what I'm doing now uh, is developing a research project where we try and understand how we, can how we can better diagnose risk of a toxic organizational culture to develop, because once it has developed, it's very hard to change. So we're looking, we're building case studies where we're looking at the worst cases 
And we're trying to understand, okay, what patterns do we see here? What do we actually see that is of a risk that we can then discuss with other organizations at a much earlier phase where we can find out, look, maybe you should be aware that this may be a problem down the line and we can prevent it. So this is a big challenge. It's one that I've seen the DOJ, Department of Justice, uh, a lot of major Wall Street uh, organizations have all focused on major banks, but nobody has really cracked this one yet because it's so complex. Um, where things are going well, um, I have to say I'm always more of a hopeless optimist in a sense that, that when, when I'm positive, I still see all the dark sides. I think several things that have worked well. So the book, for instance, we discuss seatbelts. So if you go back to nine, early 1980s, every car in the US had a seatbelt because it was mandated by law, but nobody was wearing them. Seatbelt usage was only 15%. And we see that a combination of factors, states uh, developing individual seatbelt mandates. Um, we see some law enforcement, which did work there, the click it or ticket campaigns, there's still signs in California that I've seen, even though they're very low fines, only hundred bucks. Um, we see these, 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 um, these commercials, crest test dummy commercials, trying to convince people. And then we get the warning beeps, which sort of make it hard or uncomfortable to, to not wear seatbelts. And now it's become automated. So here we have a legal success where we have a legal rule that's gone all the way from, let's say, external incentives to social, we see other, to in the end, automated, unconscious behavior where we don't make a choice anymore. So this is the sort of success we want. We've seen a similar success, for instance, um, with smoking at work. Most people don't smoke at work anymore or at the workplace. Again, legal rule changed it. We see similar success in the uh, paper industry that cleaned up in the 70s and 80s because of law. And that's sort of what the book also does. It kind of tries to look at these successes and compare them where we failed. So we wear seatbelts, but we still speed on the 405, for instance, in LA, everybody speeding. Um, we've stopped smoking at work, but somehow it's been impossible uh, to get people not to drink uh, during the 1920s and 30s, or any attempt at, at, at illicit drugs has failed and only created the opioid crisis. And the same for companies, we've dealt with water pollution, but somehow other pollution issues we've not been able to deal with. And it's those questions that are at the core of the book and why the title is Make uh, the Hidden Ways the Law Makes It Better or Worse. It works or it doesn't. I very much like that seatbelt example because when I was reading that, I was thinking, this is great. Before that, people are just driving and if somebody told you where your seatbelt, you're like, okay. But to, to turn it from that to automatically buckling in is a huge mental shift across the country. So I like that you brought the example there. I, now, mean, I mean, one inter interesting thing to mention there, I noticed a couple of years ago in China and my wife who just came back from South, from, from South Sudan, that there's something different going on with seatbelts in some countries. In both countries, the driver actually has clicked in the seatbelt behind their back. So they're sitting in front of it to stop the warning beeps. And if they get stopped, they, they, they quickly put it around them. So they actually make a very conscious decision not to wear it, which I find fascinating. I mean, and one answer I found in China at least is that the drivers in Texas, they don't use their air conditioning because it's more expensive and it gets so hot that they don't find the seatbelt to be very comfortable. It's these layers that are not added in with the usual law. That's just the main law. There's like little elements of, you didn't understand exactly. we have tornadoes, so I'm cautious. So I drive this way on this off ramp or something. Exactly. <laughs> now, one thing I want to go back to, because this is a larger point that I relate with philosophically is the prevention value for any category because once something is entrenched, it is super difficult to change it, kind of like yeah. a tooth example with some sort of cavity or like the freeway yeah. system in Los Angeles yeah. once it's already set up. So yeah. that's why I'm, I very much connect with what you're representing of adjusting it beforehand because once it's built in, you have to use the force of a thousand earths to change something that's already situated. How would you speak on that? Yeah, so, so here the law, and the legal field is more problematic than humanity general. So, so I think, uh, so if I compare that with medicine, of course, medicine had a tradition of sort of dealing with symptoms and for a very long time with, with, with very limited knowledge. And of course, there were other types of healing 
and healing knowledge and non-Western medicine that dealt with prevention much more than Western medicine ended up doing. But I think in law, we're so much focused on the spectacle, as I call it, the theater of the court. I mean, we sort of, if I say law, people are like, oh yeah, these people with robes and we have, we have the jury and the witnesses. And once you see, and that's also why we start the book with somebody driving in their car and then seeing all the rules, law is everywhere. Right. Law is everywhere. And that spectacle is sort of where law fails. If law fails, you end up in court. That's where law goes completely wrong, where we have the bad behavior and we need to assign liability and do all these arcane things that law does. But once we see the power of law in shaping everyday human conduct through rules and all the systems it can, it has to become about prevention. But then we come against this sort of tradition in legal thinking, which is all ex post. Much of it is ex post. It's the whole training. It's reading court cases. It's thinking from singular cases, not thinking about policy. If you study law, whether it's in the US or in Europe, and there's different types of training, you're studying law through major court cases. And sometimes a cool law professor will say, well, you know, the policy question, and they'll ask what the case means broader. But it's always a side question. And of course, the lawyer is not trained in answering causal questions about the future. You need econometrics, or you need psychology, or you need other types of disciplinary knowledge for that. You need to have data analytics and data science. I think we now fortunately live in a time where this much more is integrating, where we can get it together. But I think it only starts once we start taking the preventative question serious and we need to do so in the field of law. I think second in politics and in general public, uh, we're less uh, focused on the past, but we still are quite a lot. So if something goes wrong, any case where we are angry about something, whether it's progressives that are angry maybe with the latest Me Too scandal or with the latest police misconduct or conservatives that may be angry with a violent crime or something else. We sort of extrapolate from the singular case and then we want a law or a reaction in law on the singular case without asking what it means for the broader set of potential cases. So it means we're very reactive and that is well-meaning, but it may not work very well for the future. And behavioral economics and some social psychologists like Tversky have shown already in earlier research that this sort of case-based bias, this sort of heuristic, this shortcut towards from the individual to, to extrapolate from the individual to the general is very harmful. And we're trying to build to bring that into law. A lot of things came through my mind there. It's nice to relate the, let's say, law when it's directly some crime just happened or surgery of a person right now or auto repair of a car that's currently broken. But with data science, we can take these brief moments and then uh, think about where they are on the bigger picture of ups and downs of happenings of people or their car or their health. Yeah. And then it gives like a more of an extended view versus Jones versus Johnson from 1986. Exactly. And, and here you do get a really big pushback from law for, for right reason maybe. So most people in law would say, look, the social scientists should not become the judge. So they say, and, and this so the so-called fact value debate. So they say that the judge should in the end make the normative, the value-based question and do so based on the facts. But in the end, it's the judge. So they're very scared that once you let the data analytics in, that it will crowd out the judge. This is also, I think, what Roberts, Chief Justice Roberts tried to say in the, in the redistricting case when he talked about sociological gobbledygook. He said, in it, I don't understand what is said here. He said, I can't judge that. And that's sort of where we are. And I make the opposite argument. I said, look, fine if they make the value judgment, but it should be based on the facts. And it should be based on a proper understanding of facts. So we need the facts to be there, which means you need to understand the facts and complexity. That means that if you're going to make a judgment, which is about also the future, which in many of these cases it may be, for instance, does capital management deter, you need to get the facts right. And that is going back to what I said earlier, introduce procedures that the evidence comes in in the right way, is translated in the right way. Um, but it may well be that in the future, this is not enough. It may well be that in the future, if we really care about prevention, we may have to rethink of what the role of a judge is and also what the role of, an of the expertise of a judge should be. 
layers of perspective. What would you say is the biggest difference between law today and law uh, 40 years ago as far as learning it? Is there a huge difference in learning it at this time? Uh, yeah, I think there have been differences. So, so there's several, I, I think we have a much more interdisciplinary perspective of law. So law and economics in many law schools in the US became very dominant. So that means that at least there's sort of cost benefit analysis introduced into the classroom, introduced into saying, okay, is it actually good or bad that the law is the way it is? Not just based on, on, on philosophy, which, which, is, which is where it was, or based on other cases, but also based on cost benefit analysis. I think that's really strong. We see some of the uh, legal psychology also becoming of influence. For instance, on testimony in criminal justice, on, um, on uh, eyewitnesses, on memory, on expert, on, 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 uh, expert practices. We also see that some of the critical scholarship has become more important. We see much more questioning of issues of race, discrimination, also bring data in there, um, and also power differentials. So a lot of the uh, law and society studies have had some impact there. Um, so I think that it has changed in that way. Uh, we're asking for the next level of change, which is to much more look at the preventative aspects. I think there's been some move there, but not enough. In this category, who are other individuals you have resonated with or who uh, you value your uh, their thoughts as like a base model in some form? Are there any people that come to mind, researchers or professors? Oh, yeah. Oh, there's, all, there's too many to mention. So let me mention just a couple. One is Cus Sunstein. And I think his work, it's, it's not just a book nudge, which obviously had a big impact on, on, on practice, but I think his, his earlier work, uh, I mean, he has done so much, but I mean, to mention some of the things, his, his kind of work about the, the availability heuristic and the cascade effect. So, so how we respond to a singular issue and we extrapolate that as a big problem that we need to regulate. So, so I think he's shown a lot about human cognition and how that plays a role. So he's, I think, one of the forces that has made behavioral law and economics more central in law. And of course, his role also being the regulatory czar under, under Obama. And I think he also plays a role now under, in the Biden administration. So I think he, his work is, is, is really influential. Um, I think um, another line of work that has been influential is the behavioral ethics work. And uh, we can think of people like Anton Brunzel and um, also Max, Max Basermann. That work has been translated, its meaning for law by Yuval Feldman, um, uh, which I think is also an important way of thinking. And they show that our lack of cognition, or, or, or sorry, it's not a lack of cognition, that um, we don't just have a um, sort of non-deliberative cognition uh, that goes against our own interests but also makes it impossible for us to make ethical judgments. So we have a bounded ethicality and they show how that then uh, plays a role in law. I think um, finally to mention um, Sapolsky, we mentioned already uh, his book Behave, I think just getting really, I mean, for me reading that whole book and I'm happy that you unpacked, it's a book that you need to unpack. Right. It's, you need to slow read it, which I love. That was like four episodes. Great. So. What he did in his book, I think, really shows clearly the different ways in which once you, once you take it serious, that we don't fully have this sort of free will, this sort of model of thinking of the human in the legal system that we need to grapple with. And it's not easy to grapple with it. And he has a very funny chapter about that, which with very serious implications. So I think that would be, a, be another side to this. Um, but there's too many others to mention. Uh, I think Susan Silby's work, she's at MIT, massive important work on sort of the organizational side of this and the sociological side of how humans actually interact in shaping compliance and shaping what the rules mean and how they, how, how they, how they become to play a role in practice. There, there's just too many, too many people to mention for me here. Um, John Braithwaite uh, has been vital as well wonderful selection there i like that you mentioned that there's a bigger picture concept sapolsky wrote that book and then he added that chapter in if you don't add in all the elements the loss is huge because let's say he had written the whole book and left out that chapter maybe the book would still be functional but when he wrote that 
that's highly valuable to an individual, maybe in law, and maybe a whole chap chapter of people's efforts can base off of that. So it's key to never leave items out. Um, variety, I, I like the concept of variety and adding in all the elements. Well, that's not what your publisher will advise you. So I think for Sapolsky, because of his earlier book, Why Zebras Don't Get Ulcers, <laughs> great title. He may have been able to write the book in a way that he did. And, and, and what I love about that chapter is you can actually sort of read it as a standalone, which is brilliant because the book is so nuanced and complex, but you can sort of read it as a standalone. I'm going to be looking back at that chapter. Also, yeah. you mentioned that title. It's the power. very funny. I mean, the way he starts, it's it's really good. <laughs> I took notes on the whole book, but I have to. And yeah. then the title, Why Zebras Don't Have Ulcers, reminds me the value of that kind of title. Uh, one time I spoke with an economist. Her book is uh, An Economist Walks Into a Brothel. These kinds of titles. Yes. <laughs> they just, yes. Alison Schrager, they, they really punch in. And then you're like, wait a minute, what? What happened there? <laughs> My last question to you for this time would be, if you had a message to all people on the planet that you would want them to take away from your book, what would that be? Yeah, if I would make it really short, I would say law matters. Make sure that the law works better for you. And what I mean with that is law keeps you safe from harm. Try and find out how it does and how in you vote, your voting behavior, your behavior as a citizen, the way you talk about your preference for laws, how you can actually make sure that it works better for you. Um, so in any preference you have, whether it's about preventing crime, preventing a misconduct at work, uh, making sure that you're safe on the road, make sure that once you make those decisions, you don't just follow your gut feelings of, oh, I really think it's a cool law, rather really think about what would actually help to prevent bad behavior. And with COVID, the book also discusses that, we've all sort of become behavioral experts. We all have been targeted to do things we've never wanted to do in our whole lives. And we've all complied with the rules and broken them. So we all intuitively, and we also studied this now, know what works and doesn't work for that issue. Try and look at that back and think about the next time that any law is discussed to think about, okay, will it actually work to do the things I wanted to do? How does this law connect with me? Benjamin, I would like to thank you for having been on this episode discussing this book right here, The Behavioral Code, with your co-author, Adam Fine, and bringing us a variety of knowledge connecting with past books as well, and uh, guiding us into the law and how it connects with behavior. Well, thank you so much for having me, Arne. That was great. Wonderful. And we are out.